Church, let me just say it's good to be here with you. I'm glad you're here. Merry Christmas and all of those such things. Amen? <laughs> I know some of you have not been with us the last few weeks, and that, I just want to say, is perfectly fine. We're so glad you're here. One of the things we've been looking at as we've been moving through our Advent series is how the Christmas story affects us as a church that is seeking to grow, seeking to become new in the community, seeking to be what God, excuse me, what God wants us to be. The first week of Advent, we landed in the book of Isaiah as we looked at the incarnation. The incarnation is the big word, theology word, theological word that talks about how Christ came and came in the form of a small child. He came and lived the life that we lived, the existence that we lived, and that is just utterly powerful and amazing. And what we saw as a church in that is that we too are meant to be incarnate in the world. We are not meant to go from the world, but to be in it as Christians, engaging the world together as a church that we might see God's best or at least as best as we can work and move as we engage with the world. The second week, we looked through the difficulty of John the Baptist, who found himself imprisoned and later murdered for his ministry and his faith in Jesus. He had, through Christ, found hope in and for a dark world. And we talked about how as a church, we need to be a people of hope. We need to be a people who expect that God is doing awesome and amazing and mighty wonderful things in the world. Last week, we looked through Mary's song of utter joy, and we found, I hope, if you are here, the joy that we are meant to have in Christ. That no matter how dark or bleak or just confusing this world is, we as believers... And I hope you are a believer. If you're not, you're still welcome here. Uh, we as believers should have a joy in what God is doing. It has a lot to do with our hope, doesn't it? One of those things that we find joy in as believers and as those who look at God is joy in what we can call God's generosity. We worship an incredibly generous God. And as such, we as a church, we as Christians, are meant to also be incredibly generous. So we're going to do two things today. The first is we're going to consider the amazing and wonderful generosity of God that we might just simply worship and thank Him on this Christmas for how generous He is. The second thing we're going to do today is consider what the wonderful generosity of God looks like in His people, you and I as we seek to be his people in the world around us. When, this, when we speak of the generosity of God, we are speaking of the things that he did not need to do, that he did not need to give, and yet he does. We're going to take a 10,000-foot view of God's generosity. And I will tell you one of my fears in doing any 10,000-foot view of anything in the Bible is that it can sometimes feel a bit like a pogo stick as you go up and down in different passages and different parts. There are literally thousands of examples of the generosity of God in Scripture. 
I would guess if you were to take upon the exercise to go looking, you would not have to go more than two or three pages ever to find yet another example of God's utter and amazing generosity. We're not going to do that today. We don't have that kind of time. But maybe as you approach the Bible this next year, as you might commit to reading the Bible through in a year, which is something if you've never done, would be a great thing to do, you might intentionally look through for the generosity of God and make note of every time God is generous. I, I will warn you, if you do that, you're going to need a number of notebooks. One will probably not be enough. One could also simply take a deep dive into the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, and see the divine generosity that pours forth out of the Son of God, out of Jesus as he lived and as he acted and as he worked and as he ministered. This is something we will continue to do as we get back to the book of Mark in a few weeks and continue our series through the book of Mark. Instead, today, what we want to do is, and what I want to do, is take a five, look at five key actions of our good and our gracious King and see how those key actions of generosity of God leads all of us, any of us who are saved, who have a relationship with Him, to be found in Him. It is His generosity by which we are saved. We're going to take a look at that today. So we want to look at five generous gifts that the Lord has given us and given the world, the first is creation. The first is creation. Remember, I said the generosity of God is doing something that he does not need to do. And we need to recognize this. God did not need to create. And yet he did. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever paused at that point and asked, Why? Have you ever wondered, why did God create? Why did he set out on this endeavor that would eventually lead? And, and sometimes we ask that question and it's full of pain because we're wondering why he created maybe in the way he created in a way that would allow for evil and suffering in the world. Why, if things were going to be so hard, would God create it at all? The question gets to the heart, why would a perfect God in perfect Trinitarian unity, eternally loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, without a problem, a contention, or division in existence, decide to create? Now, let me just say this slightly flippantly to that question, because he did. And who are we to question that? There, there's a part of me that wants to stop there, but that is not satisfying to anybody in here. Amen? I mean, he did. He created because that's what he wanted to do. End of story. But there is far more to it. God was not sitting in heaven lacking in something and thinking, you know what I want to do today? I want to create problems for myself. No, instead, perfect God and perfect unity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided together to share what they had with others. And that is an overflowing, unending, perfect love. Michael Reeves, in the best book on the Trinity that I've re ever read, says this, He has always enjoyed showering his love on his son, and in creating, he rejoices to shower it on children he loves through his son. 
Just think about that. God in eternity, loving the Son eternally. And what does he want to do? He wants to share that love, and that is why he created in the first place. We see in creation a beautiful generosity as God's love pours out upon creation. God the Father shares the love he's had for the Son, shares the love he's had in the Spirit with all that he is created. Michael Reeves goes on to say this, there is something gratuitous about creation, an unnecessary abundance of beauty, and through its blossoms and pleasures, we can revel in the sheer largest of the Father. We live in a beautiful place, amen? God could have created everything he created without any of that beauty. And yet what did he do? He created it in beauty, in reflection of the perfect beauty of the Trinity, that he might share his love for us. In creation, God pours out his love, his creativity, the vibrance and diversity making creation all that it is, and even continuing to sustain it all the way through. God's generosity does not end in the creation act in the book of Genesis, but we're actually told in Scripture that he continues on in it, continues in his creation. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is upholding the universe with the words of his mouth. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Church, hear this. His generosity did not end at the end of the seven days of creation. It continues on in and through all of history. The first act of generosity God makes is in creating. The second act of God, which he is so generous about, is in revelation. Not the book of Revelation. Of course, that also is a generous gift to us if we would endeavor to actually understand what it says. But revelation, revelation is, is the idea that God continues to give us information, but not just information, relational knowledge about who he is and our understanding of him. We are told that despite the fact that creation was beautiful and wonderful and good, that sin entered into God's creation and that the natural love, the what I would say easy love between God and his people ceased to be. Simply put, humanity got harder to love as sin entered into the human experience. And even the world, the creation that God made beautifully and wonderfully and perfectly is broken by our sinful bent. We can rejoice at the same time at a weather system that brings us here in the valley much needed moisture, but also recognize at the same time that others are negatively affected by that same system because things are broken. But the greater problem in humanity's sin is not that creation is broken. It is that we, in our relationship with God, are broken. Humanity does not know God. And as a result, 
you and I, if we don't know God, are missing out. Romans 1 tells us that we had just enough understanding in sight of God through creation to be a problem. The greatest gift of creation that would invite us to know who God is actually becomes a curse in and of itself. Romans 1, 18-20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What, what God has made shows us how awesome and mighty and wonderful and beautiful and amazing God is. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And here's where the curse comes in. It says, so they are without excuse. The revelation in creation curses us because what we should know in God and what we should know of the creator, we should see just by opening our eyes. But the world doesn't see it, and we know that. Some of us in this room don't see it. And the invitation is to see it. The invitation is to know how wonderful God is through that. But creation and the knowledge we gain from creation doesn't save. It doesn't save. For those of us who connect well with God in nature, in creation, in the natural world, and this is me all the way, in the morning sunrise, the evening sunset, or by opening our eyes and seeing the almost 360-degree view of mountains when everything clears up, or who is awed by the mighty majesty as they look at a tiny baby's face. There is a danger for us. Because creation doesn't save anyone. If it did, everybody in the San Luis Valley would be saved. Because we are surrounded by the might and the power and the grandeur of God's creation. It should point us, but it doesn't. Let me say this to you, and this is a message to me. This is a reminder to me that for every minute we spend gazing at the beauty of creation and thinking about how wonderful God is, we should spend 10 minutes studying the Word of God. And the reason for that is because creation and the knowledge, the revelation that comes out of creation cannot save, but the knowledge and the information that comes out of the Word of God can. God has given us everything we need to know through this book. And so he gives us this generosity first in creation, and then he gives us this generosity in the revelation as he reaches out to us. That's what the Bible is. The Bible is God reaching out to us because without it, our eyes cannot and will not see him. He reaches out to Abraham with a promise of his covenant, faithfulness to Moses. He reaches out to in a burning bush and introduces himself with words. He says, I am who I am. He spoke to the prophets. We should never take their words lightly. They say, thus saith the Lord. Now, modern translations would say, the Lord has said. It is a serious thing to put the words of God anywhere but out of the mouth of God. It is even more a serious thing to claim to be God and tell people what God thinks. But guess what? Jesus does that in his incarnation. He comes and he says, I am. 
in response to God having introduced himself in the burning bush as I am. Jesus says in John 12, 49, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment and what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say is the Father has told me. God's generosity and revelation, creation into the word of God, the, the passing on to, to Abraham and to Moses and the prophets, and finally to Jesus himself. And the Bible's clear about Jesus himself. I've already touched on Colossians and Hebrews. Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God could not possibly dwell on anyone but on God himself. Hebrews 1, verse, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about all the things he said to Abraham and to Moses and, and to the prophets and all those along the way, King David and many others. Verse 2, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and hear this, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God's generosity in giving us his Son that we might actually know and see and understand who God is. From the very beginning, God has been giving us revelation. It is his maybe second greatest act of generosity in all of human and all of world history. First, he reveals in creation, and then he reveals in the word of God, and finally he reveals in his son whom he sends in the incarnation. That is the third act of generosity that God gives, his, the incarnation of his son, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this, Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Quick pause there. What that means, church, is that you have been given this gift already if you are in Christ. This is not something we need to strive for. It's something he has already placed in you for you to live out. It says this, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest act, the greatest gift of generosity in the Bible, in all of human history, is Jesus Christ coming. Not just coming, but dying for us. R.C. Sproul called it this. He said, this is addition by subtraction. Giving up glory, honor, while limiting the use of his divine nature. Because, hear this, one cannot be human and be everywhere at all times. Our body cannot be in two places at the same time, let alone a billion places at the same time. One cannot know everything in existence and still be human. Our brains would explode. One cannot be powerfully in control of all things and be born as a tiny baby in desperate need for everything to be provided for him by his mother, and by his earthly father. R.C. Sproul says, addition by subtraction. He becomes more by reducing himself. 
Sometimes generosity is not clearly seen in what is given, but it is seen in what is given up. And Christ, the Son of God, gave up everything for us in his generosity. The fourth, the fourth act of generosity we see in Scripture is redemption. It is redemption. It is that men like you and women like you, men like me, can be saved at all. This is a gift that not a one of us deserves, and we need to remember that this is something God could have not done. God did not need to save us. He did not need to come for us. And yet, what does he do? In his generosity, he does. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hear this. We are given the righteousness of God, and he is given the sinfulness of man. Now, I've been to a lot of white elephants, uh, you know, gift exchanges in my life. Anybody else been to a lot of, of white elephant gift exchanges? Inevitably, at every single one of them, there is somebody who did not get the memo that it was meant to be a gag. And they spent real money or spent real time putting money into a gift to make for someone that somebody might enjoy. You know what always happens to that person? Somebody gets their gift and they get the worst thing there. God has been participating in the worst white elephant gift exchange in all of history because Christ gives us his holiness and his, his right redemption. He gives us everything. And what does he get in return? He gets death on a cross. He takes upon our sins. Friends, it's here that I, I want to pause really quick, and I want, you, I want you to consider whether or not you have received the gift of salvation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the, the redemption of Jesus, hear this, is not that Jesus wants to be our friend. Now, it's a good thing. It's a good gift that Jesus wants to be our friend. The gospel is not that Jesus wants you to live a good life or your best life now. That, too, is a good gift, I think. Not the best. The gospel is not that we get to have a great church community. Again, a great gift that we are given, but not the gift. The gospel is not that we get power from the Holy Spirit. Two, a good gift. We're actually going to talk about that in just a minute. The gospel is not that we get freedom to sin while expecting that Jesus will forgive us. His daily forgiveness here at this church is a really good gift. It is one that none of us deserve, and we all receive every day if we are in him. But this is not the greatest gift that one can enjoy. The greatest gift that one gets is the gift of redemption. And that was bought with the death of Jesus. As he took upon all of our sin and gave us all of his righteousness. Church, one of my fears as a pastor I'll say this is one of my fears even in my own life, is that there are times when we skip over the greatest gift for lesser gifts. When we get so focused on all the blessings of being a Christian that we forget about the one most important of all, that Jesus Christ came and he lived the life that 
that we live, and then he died the death we should have died so that we don't have to. We miss the greatest gift chasing after lesser ones. Church, let me ask you this today. Does your sin make you sad? Does it make you mourn? Does it make you cry out to God? Because if it doesn't, then you're missing out. Do you know that your only hope in life and death is Christ's atoning sacrifice alone? It is not good works. It is not being raised in the right family. It is not having raised your hand once upon a time and said yes to the Lord and then put your hand down and never raised it again. Is the most important thing in your life your relationship with God or at least do you desire that even though you can't seem to make it happen? Church, some of us prayed a prayer of salvation long ago, but that prayer has not been a one and done. It is meant to be a prayer we take upon ourselves every single day. Are you enjoying lesser gifts while ignoring the greatest gift of the generosity of God that is right in front of you, and that is salvation in Christ? The final act, church, the final act of God's generosity we get in Scripture, the final big one, is the empowerment that is given by the Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, hear this, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live new life, to minister and serve in his name. John 14, 26 says this. Jesus is saying this. He says to his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. We've talked about this as a church before. We will talk about it again and again and again as a church, because Jesus' words tell us as believers that we will actually accomplish more than he will. Now, when I read that, it gives me great pause. When I read that, I... What? How is it possible that I could do more? Well, I've said this before. It's because we, the church, get to do it together. The reality is this, and this is sort of a startling thought. Jesus only ministered for three years of his life. I've been in ministry for almost 25 years. Jesus never traveled more than about 50, 60, 80 miles from his home. Tell you what, I've I've been in various places all across the United States, some places in other parts of the world. How is it possible that we could do more? It's because he sends his spirit that we might continue his work. Even you sitting here today can do more than Jesus did because of God's generosity. Because he not only saves someone like you, but he sends his spirit into someone like you to, to live and to fill you and to impress upon you the, the brokenness of the world that you might understand his word and you might understand the state of the world and that you might go. It is God's act of generosity to this world that he empowers someone like you to go. You are, you are here this church, you are. God's gift of generosity to the world. 
Now, that may or may not be true for you today, but if you're a Christian, it is true, and you are meant to be living into that. We are not just saved for us. He saves us for them. For everybody around us who, who needs to know. Church, I think after salvation itself, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the best gift that we are given. And that leads us, church, to the second thing we want to talk about today, which I'll just say we're going to spend a lot less time on. Because I firmly believe that, that as we study God's generosity, it should do nothing in us but make us want to be more generous. We can spend less time on what this means for us because we've spent so much time on what it means for Him to be generous and what that looks like. I firmly believe that generosity is one of, if not the most telling of Christian attributes. Now, last week we talked about joy being one of, if not the most important, most clear signs and indicators that we are Christians. Here's the thing. As much as we cannot be joyless, curmudgeon Christians, we also can't be stingy Christians. How can we be joyless with a God that we serve, how can we be stingy when God is everything in generosity? Kent Hughes, a commentator, says this about the Gospel of Luke. He says that the, the Gospel of Luke has a particular theological interest in generosity. He says it's a, it's a sign of a regenerate soul. He says, there's no such thing as a Christian Scrooge, he says. We may know some Scrooges who claim to be Christians, but I don't think you can claim to really know Christ and be a stingy person because the gospel opens up our soul and with it what? Our hands. He highlights that in the book of Luke, just a few chapters apart. You get the story of the rich man who holds his treasure so dear to his heart that he walks away from Jesus sad. Church, let me hear, let me say this. I hope none of us ever walk away from Jesus sad. And then just a few chapters later, you have Zacchaeus, the thief tax collector who, when he meets Jesus, not only decides to give everything that he stole back, but he gives many times that which he stole back. He cannot hear this. He cannot help but throw money out for his joy in Jesus. Now, before you think this sermon's about money, let me just say this. There are way more ways as Christians to be generous than just with our wallets. Way more ways. Now, yes, Money is one of them, and we collect an offering, and we, we take up offerings for world missions, and we, we take up special offerings and all this. Why? Because for so many of us, God knows exactly where we need to be generous. And for some of us, we might feel that. We might experience that. But others of us, we are incredibly generous when it comes to money, but we will not give anybody even 10 seconds of our time. Or we might be incredibly generous with our time, but we're incredibly stingy with forgiveness. Church, generosity is not just about money. Generosity is about how we live every bit of our lives and pouring out everything we are and everything we have because that's exactly what God did 
in the Christmas story. We need to grow in, in our generosity and money and our giftings and our sharing of talent and spiritual gifts or serving our time. I'll tell you, one of the ones for me is energy. I mean, I'll give my best over here, but do I give my best over here? Best energy? Right, I've already said it, patience with believers, forgiveness. And so church, as we hear this, as we think about this, I want to invite you this Christmas season into a life of generosity in Christ. How do we grow in generosity? Well, number one, if you are not a generous person, give your life to Jesus. You say, well, I am. I've already done that, but I'm not a generous person. Are you sure? Give your life to Jesus. Now, like I said earlier, this is not something we do. Now, we believe here at Calvary. We believe that once we're saved, we are always saved. So when I say that your hand raising is not a one and done, I don't mean that if it was for real, when you raised your hand and accepted Christ, that it was for real. But I think as Christians, every single day we reaffirm that decision on our own and together. And maybe it's time for you to reaffirm your salvation, reaffirm what Christ has done for you, because somewhere along the way you've forgotten if you're not a, a generous Christian. Give your life to Jesus. Spend time with him. Just look at his generosity. Number two, pray. Pray for the Spirit's leading to make us generous. Every single day, you look at your life and you say, you know what, I'm really a stingy person. I'm stingy with my money, stingy with my time, stingy with my energy. I can't forgive anybody around me. First thing you do, every single morning, wake up and say, Lord, make me generous today. Say, give me opportunities to be generous today. To love someone, to serve someone, to give something, to sacrifice for someone, to take my precious time and give it away. Every single morning, pray that the Lord would lead you in that and give you the opportunities for that. Number three, take the time to examine where you're not generous and also where you are, right? One of the best ways to grow in generosity is to get more generous in the ways you're good at being generosity. We spend a lot of time in our culture talking about correcting faults. What we should probably do more is spend a lot of time talking about correcting or, or encouraging and building strengths, right? You, you're already generous in giving money. Praise the Lord. Give more. And see what happens with your joy. You already love sacrificing your time. Praise the Lord. Give more time, right? Because the Lord maybe has gifted you in those ways so that you can grow in them all the more. All right, number five, and I want you to hear this. Number five, stop making excuses when it comes to generosity. Here's what we say, and I say this too, okay? As a pastor, I say this. As a father, I say this. As a husband, I say this. As just a general believer, stop making excuses. Why? We, we think well, they might not appreciate it, right? You ever not give it in some way because they might not appreciate it? Well, they might not like it. It might offend them. I might not have enough if I give. 
Now, I want you to just imagine this for a moment. Come back to the generosity of God, especially in the incarnation. What would have been that conversation between the Father and the Son if the Son started coming up with excuses? Oh, they won't appreciate what I'm going to do for them. Right? I mean, some of them won't even know what I'm going to do for them. Why would I do that? Think about all the excuses Christ could have made. And if he had we would be utterly lost and utterly alone and utterly on on our road to death. But that conversation between the Father and the Son went very different. Because God is so generous with us. Church, this Christmas season, may we be as generous. May we be as generous with ourselves. May we be as generous with our church, with our community. May we be as generous with God. Amen? God, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness today, your mercy, as we celebrate the the birth of your son, Lord, as we think about even tonight, the second service we'll have, Lord, that our hearts would be filled and open to what you have for us today, Lord, that you would fill us and make us generous. God, we love you and we praise you and we come before you and we ask this in your name. Amen.